what I want to explore with you that I'm very much looking forward to exploring with you is the topic of compassion. And uh, the topic of compassion specifically as an aspect of the path to awakening and as an expression of awakening. And when I was reflecting on this topic, it's a topic that's very uh, close to me. It's something that's been really powerful in my own practice. And I was just reflecting on what I might want to share with you today about this topic. I was reflecting on a journey that I made in 2010. And it was a journey to go live and study and practice in uh, Asia, and mostly in India, for six months. And it was my first long trip to Asia to practice and study. I'd actually deliberately chosen as a younger Dharma student to stay here in the West and be guided and tutored by teachers in Eastern and Western traditions, but actually stay home, not to go anywhere. But I noticed right around the time of 2010 that a rite of passage was needed. Uh, in practice for me and in my life. And so I thought, okay, Asia is calling. And I went. And during that journey, uh, any of us who've been to Asia, we know that everything happens there. So I engaged in, you know, and I'll just give you a few kind of headlines of this journey. Any one of these headlines could be a whole story and probably a whole talk. I'll just give you a few headlines because it's the themes that are more important than the stories. So I engaged in practice of, for example, learning how to say no with a smile. Uh, Sylvia was talking about this story in, uh, in Israel of the shopkeepers. I have exactly what you want. Well, you know, I have exactly what you want as worldwide shopkeepers. Uh, in this country, we just do it with big billboards and flashing lights, but it's all the same. Uh, so learning how to say no with a smile and stay connected. Learning how to open the heart to the tremendous suffering you know, of, of not the words, but the direct experience of a hungry kid pulling on my hand. You know? And the lepers and the ones that I would give the rupees to every day in between the fingerless hands. Yeah. Uh, and really taking that on. The heart opens and closes. The heart opens and closes. The mind opens and closes. Learning how to take in being blessed by the elders in the communities that I was living in as they would circumambulate, prostrate, walk, finger their malas, say their prayers, and taking in that blessing. Learning how to take it in. You know, it's something we're all learning here. When the blessings come, can we take it in? Can we receive what is offered? You know, receiving the teachers, the masters who guided me during that time. And also a couple of really, really hard events. Uh, one of them being I was living in the Himalayas, about 12,000 feet, and there was a huge, huge flash flood a natural disaster that that area of India had not seen for over a hundred years. And I was right in the middle of it, uh, with the people dying 
and with the children whose parents got washed away in that flood, but they managed to hold on to the tree branch. And how to open to this internally and externally, how to respond skillfully internally and externally. And so being touched by Mother India, that's part of why we go. The truth of the matter is, is there's plenty of places in this country where we could go where there is a tremendous amount of external suffering that we could choose and that we do choose and that we do live in to be touched by, you know, depending on circumstances over the course of a life, depending on where we were raised. So the reason that I share that with you is more because what that journey offered me was a completion of a full circle of 20 years of practice. It brought me back to where I started. And it reminded me of my original tension for Dharma practice when I first came in in my late teens. And what it really was was open-heartedness in the face of the world's suffering. And it was interesting because after I got back from that trip, I found the very quote that I had lost for mm, maybe over a decade that uh, originally inspired this intention for practice to have open heart in the face of suffering. Uh, And I found it right after I got back, and so I wanted to share it with you. And it's actually by uh, Stephen Levine. Wonderful, wonderful Dharma teacher, many years, worked with tremendous suffering in many communities. So it's a very long quote, but I'll read you my favorite part. He says, and he's talking about love. He says, what I mean by love is not an emotion. It is a state of being. True love has no object. Many speak of their unconditional love for another. Unconditional love is the experience of being. There is no I and other, and anyone or anything it touches is experienced in love. You cannot unconditionally love someone. You can only be unconditional love. And out of the entirety of that quote and hearing that quote for the first time early on in my practice, I realized that's my intention. My intention for a manifestation of awakening and freedom and liberation in this life is to be love. I knew I wanted it, but I did not know what it meant. And I knew I was very, very far away. Many of us come into this practice through what I laughingly like to call the dukkha door. So what that means is we come in through a tremendous suffering of one kind or another, be it personal, social, family, um, and there's such a kind of desperation for getting out that we're willing to do something as radical as this, do nothing. (laughs) And one of the teachers that is the biggest inspiration for me uh, in this spirit that that I wanted to share with you because she's been talked about very much during this retreat by Sylvia and by Mary Grace is uh, this great meditation master, late meditation master Deepama, Bengali housewife. And so 
we've been mentioning that after her experience of awakening, what was left in her mind was calm and peace and love and happiness. It all sounds wonderful, right? Sign me up. Uh, But what I wanted to remind us of, or share with you if you don't know, uh, was her doorway. You know, she wasn't born with those qualities in full manifestation. They were available, as they are available to all of us, given the right conditions. But actually, she came into the path through tremendous suffering. And so that's what I want to share with you. Before she started meditating, in a period of 10 years, two of her children and her husband unexpectedly died. They were all very unexpected, very shocking, very devastating for her. The way it is when we lose our loved one. And out of that experience, and she still had one daughter left, and that daughter's name was Deepa, which is where her name came from, Deepa Ma. Deepa's Ma. So she was a mother first, and she was a mother last. And so her own health fell apart out of this deep, deep grief, and she got sicker and sicker and sicker. And somebody said to her that she trusted, we don't know what to do to cure you. Maybe you should meditate. And it said that when she went to her first meditation center in Rangoon to learn how to meditate, that she was so ill that she actually had to crawl up the stairs of the Dhamma Hall, literally. There was a quote really early on in her meditation practice, which was uh, one of the quotes that was inspiring to her that I'll share with you because it inspires me. It's a quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. It says, Clinging to what is dear brings sorrow. Clinging to what is dear brings fear. For one who has gone beyond clinging, there is no more sorrow or fear. That's possible. We've experienced that in moments, some long, some short, with our pain, with our sorrow, and then something releases. And the sorrow and the fear, poof. I'm also very inspired that after the awakening, series of awakenings that she had, she made the choice to go back home and teach the other Bengali housewives mindfulness and meditation in a way that they could understand and practice with the conditions of their lives. That out of compassion, understanding what she did, having been through what she'd been through, she could meet these women, her neighbors, her friends, people she didn't know, and teach them in a very, very compassionate, wise way. So compassion is an expression of her awakening. So for myself, uh, I can really relate metaphorically to the image of crawling into the Dhamma Hall. Um, I have to say that even though uh, I would never be so arrogant as to compare the level of suffering that I was experiencing as I entered this meditation practice with the suffering that she experienced. Uh, At the same time, I was born with an extremely sensitive heart that was very large. Um, 
and the events of my life that were painful touched it deeply. Whether it was when I started practice in my late teens, I was in a huge amount, you might be surprised to know, of chronic pain. You don't think of that in late teens. But in fact, I had a very dramatic car accident. And I was in chronic pain for many years. I didn't know how to work with it. Usually I just dissociated. There was a tremendous amount of pain in my family, uh, specifically around uh, a thread of mental illness that ran through my family and the caregiving that I had to do while I was still a child. That really wiped out my heart. It was big, but I didn't have the tools to meet the level of suffering that I was facing in my own home. And then also a theme that ran through my family system was that of addiction. Uh, And that addiction also touched me because it was one of the tools that I used to try to deal with the level of suffering in my home. And I went down, and I went down hard, and I went down young. So then I had to tend to the wreckage of that. Those are some of the main themes. We all have our own themes. And I'm incredibly and regularly uh, touched by the themes that we are sharing with each other as we check in over and over. And now this piece, and now this piece, and now it settles down, and now it opens up, and now there's this other undercurrent of pain, and could I meet it fully? You know, that is what you're bringing us. It's so beautiful, even in its pain. So I came into practice and uh, discovered that intention for me and being love was incredibly important because there was a lot of love available, but it was very immature. It didn't have a lot of awakening in it. It didn't have a lot of wisdom in it. Uh, and so, you know, that's part of why the striving that I was describing in the last talk was so strong. You know, how I could possibly hurt a knee like that. So I really saw when I went to India, ah, 20 years later, you know, compassion has been the path and compassion is the fruit of the path. It's the expression of what has been awakened and what has been dropped and what has been transformed here. Like Mary Grace, when I think about a definition of compassion, I like to think of it as the caring heart uh, which quivers in response to suffering. It's a traditional kind of image, the quivering heart in response to suffering. And what I see is that having been touched by suffering, then the wish to respond appropriately to relieve that suffering arises. This is the great compassion. So it's not passive. And it's not individual. It's us. It's engaged. And so I was just reflecting on words. When I think of compassion, what are the words I think of? Warm, responsive, caring, pliant, inclusive. You you have your own words, your own language. And I love the image in the tradition of compassion. It goes, it's an image of uh, a great tree. And it's a great tree in the summer, in in kind of full canopy. 
And the quote that goes with the image is, a tree makes no distinction in the shade it provides. So too, the great heart of compassion makes no distinction in the caring that it offers. So co-joined with wisdom, compassion is one of the two wings of awakening. Uh, Qualities that are talked about as masquerading as compassion, one of them is pity. Not pity like rapture, but pity. (laughs) It's It's probably a lack of pity anyway. And really what pity is, is deep caring with a defensive structure, which is a sense of separation. I'm so sorry for you. I am so sorry for you. As if, like, this is different. Right? As if we could ever be separate from somebody else's pain. Yeah, but we have that defensive structure, and it's pity. The opposite, of course, of compassion, anger, ill will, hatred, is kind of the mind-heart that's heavily defended and really separate. And I'll say this uh, just because language is important. Uh, For some of us, I'm going to use the word heart a lot in this talk, but again, in the tradition, this word chitta is mind-heart. So I'll try to alternate them, but if the word heart isn't resonating for you, just apply mind. This is the same. So be sharing some about the wisdom aspects of compassion, about why it's hard to practice compassion, and then just kind of woven through uh, skillful means for uh, you know, summoning forth and uh, increasing this quality, how to practice with it. But first, the wisdom aspects. Because when I was young in the practice, I actually, even though my intention was to be love, I diverged. I went into all these kind of teachings that I thought, oh, these are wisdom teachings, and what I, what I really need is, is to be very, very wise. So I better abandon love and get into wisdom. And I started doing all these technical meditation practices and concentration and how insight progresses and all these different things that were super technical. I thought, oh, there's no room for this messy heart in awakening. Boy, was I wrong. You know, so if there's even one of us here uh, that has journeyed through that or is in the middle of that, I I just want to mention this piece that I learned, uh, that wisdom and compassion are co-joined. They're not separate at all. We just circle around and around, and we use the two wings, and we fly. And we do. We fly. So we know what the wisdom aspects are. Dukkha, anicca, anatta. Suffering, change, and uh, not-self, or not taking it so personally. So first let's talk about suffering, because compassion is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. It feels important to name a few more of the ways that suffering manifests in our lives. Bring them into the room here. So we all experience suffering of the body. We all experience suffering of the mind. We all experience suffering of the heart, whether it's emotional, psychological. We experience suffering in our families, our current family and our families of origin. We experience cultural suffering, you know, whether it's suffering connected with ethnicity, whether it's suffering connected with gender, orientation, class, 
ability, just to name a few. And when I was reflecting on the wisdom aspect of compassion in relation to suffering, I got inspired remembering the teaching in our tradition of the five reflections. So to mention it in case you have forgotten or haven't heard it yet, uh, the first three of the five reflections in our tradition are concerned with uh, basically the suffering of the body and how to bring some wisdom and compassion in. And I learned these reflections as a chant uh, when the Western Theravadan tradition was born. Uh, a lot of these teachings got transformed into chants, and that was how I learned them. So I'll just chant the first three that are really about the body. So the first one goes, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to get ill. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Right? Right? It's real. <laughs> it's really real. And so we, you know, the, 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 it demands a compassionate response. This is hard stuff, being a human being, living a life. And it's rich, you know, and vibrant and open. So, in the second noble truth, there are three roots to suffering. The first is called suffering of suffering. And it's really talking about the second arrow that we shoot. Uh, And it's also talking about what many of you have mentioned to me in our individual check-ins when you've been tracking this practice that we've been teaching and exploring around Vedna or feeling tone. And a number of you have come in and said to me, yeah, when I notice an unpleasant feeling tone, uh, and then I notice the space in between that and the craving, and then I notice how the craving's unpleasant, and then I notice how the craving is actually more unpleasant than the unpleasant feeling tone of whatever it was happened. This is an important insight. We're noticing the suffering of suffering. When we struggle, it hurts. What kind of attitude are we going to bring to that? Judge? Beat ourselves up again? Haven't we done that enough yet? And of course the answer is no, because we keep going. (laughs) It's such a strong, conditioned response. And the tradition, it says, until full enlightenment, the judging mind will continue. So I really take heart with that. And when the judging mind arises again in this being, I say, ah, not an arhat yet, not fully enlightened yet. That's information. That's all it tells me. Not fully enlightened yet. Second root of suffering, the suffering of change. Which in a simple way we we could say is the loss of what's pleasant, the loss of what's wanted, or simply the exhaustion of how things are constantly changing. It's exhausting. Just on and on and on and on. Feed it, clothe it, brush it. It's exhausting. So we struggle with it, we suffer. The fourth reflection of that teaching that I chanted is this. 
All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Yeah. True. The third root of suffering is the suffering, I like to call it the suffering of tendencies. Some other language you might be more familiar with is the suffering of volitional formations or the suffering of conditioned processes. It's the suffering of strong, deep-seated habit patterns, basically. And so this teaching about karma, and karma is a word that means action, and it's action fueled by intention, and it creates our world. Remember Sylvia mentioning in one of her teachings the first line from the Dhammapada, you know, that, that everything is preceded by mind and led by mind and created by mind. So the fifth reflection is this. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, Abide supported by my kama. Whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. What are we going to do with this deep-seated habit pattern that has arisen in this moment? What is our attitude going to be? Could it be compassion? Might we trust that a caring response to a deep-seated habit pattern could be enough to start to transform it? Sometimes it is enough. The second wisdom aspect of compassion, understanding impermanence. And the part that I want to talk about in terms of understanding impermanence and compassion uh, is the quality of acceptance. Because it's very clear to me in talking to you that the direct experience of impermanence is being lived and breathed and moved through in every one of us. There's so much wisdom in this hall about impermanence. And may the power of that transform our world. So I just want to keep it simple and talk about this aspect of acceptance and share a story from a local grief counselor here in the Bay Area. Her name is Martha K. Nelson. And she shared a story that I heard about a friend of hers. Her friend was named Stina. And Stina had just gotten married and she was on her honeymoon. And she was 32 years old. And during her honeymoon, her husband and herself took a beautiful hike in the woods. And at one point, they sat down on a log to have a snack and take a rest and connect with each other. And that particular log, unbeknownst to them, uh, had an uncertain interior. It was unstable inside. And it started to crumble. And it cracked. And it actually disintegrated under them. And they both fell down this hill. And her friend Stina actually died of the injuries of this accident that happened on her honeymoon. And so this this story is about, actually about Martha's grief 
about the loss of her friend. But we should definitely call her husband into the room. Stina's death, Martha says, keeps me at the edge of practice. It cuts straight through my so-called understanding that we all must die. Impermanence is a great little concept, but what happens when life smacks you upside the head with a two-by-four? Can we accept the truth of impermanence then? Experiencing the pain of change when you're knocked on your butt isn't the problem. Accepting it is another matter entirely. Surely my resistance adds an extra layer of suffering, but what are you going to do? When the pure misery of loss comes calling, do we rail against what is happening or take several deep breaths and allow the pain? Dharma includes a practice of allowing pain. It is about breathing through it, leaning into it, softening enough to let it in, and practicing staying soft as it rips your insides to shreds. It's like that sometimes. We all know it. And I like that quote because it's real. It doesn't hold its punches. We're not holding our punches here. Anybody that comes on a one-month or two-month retreat, mm -mm. How do we bring in acceptance? How do we experience the impermanence and the pain and bring in the acceptance? The third wisdom aspect is understanding uh, interdependent truth, basically. We could call it emptiness. We could call it we're all equal in this human life. There's many ways we could term it. And I wanted to share with you to illustrate this quality of, of compassion in the face of interdependent truth, um, the story of uh, Kisa, Kisa Gotama. You know about Kisa Gotama? She was the woman with the story with the mustard seed. Right? And people are going, oh, yeah. So let's, let's revisit this story or visit it for the first time. Actually, we always visit it for the first time. It's the only time. So, Kisa means thin, and it refers to the poverty that she grew up in. And Gotama is her family name, and she was actually a cousin of the Buddha. She, when she came of age, she actually married a wealthy man, but this man mistreated her. Uh, abused her verbally and in various ways, gave her a really hard time until she was blessed to give birth to a son, which in the culture of that time was preferred. So she had a son and everything came together and she's very happy. Her husband was treating her well with respect. And then suddenly when her son was a toddler, he died out of nowhere. And she went crazy with grief. And she carried her son around on her hip, begging people for medicine so that he would get better. Somebody that she went to out of great compassion suggested that she go to the doctor, the Buddha. And she did, with her dead child on her hip. Help me, help me, save my child. Uh, And the Buddha said, My dear friend, 
Go and bring a white mustard seed from a home in which no one has died, and then maybe I can help you. And so she went, you know, carrying her baby, her dead baby, and all her grief, knocking on the door of the house. Do you have a white mustard seed that I could have? Of course. Here's your white mustard seed. Oh, wait. I can only have a white mustard seed from a house in which nobody has died. Has anybody died in your home? Why, yes. My brother has died. Next door. A mustard seed. Has anyone died? Why, yes. My mother, my cousin, my baby. You know? And looking into the eyes of each of these people who has also experienced loss. At some point she went and buried her child and then went to the Buddha and said, I want to take ordination. And practiced quite diligently. She was very well known for being a strict renunciate. And eventually awakened. So I'll read you her enlightenment poem. I have practiced the the great eightfold way straight to the undying. I have come to the great peace. I have looked into the mirror of the Dhamma. The arrow is out. I have put my burden down. What had to be done has been done. Sister Kisa Gotami, with a free mind, has said this. Her lion's roar. So you might think, well, that's a great archetypal story. Uh, and I'm touched by it, or it brings up you know, our own pain, or the numbness. The numbness is part of the pain. But I was thinking about how archetypally, it's not about era, it's not about place on the planet. This is what we go through. And I recently rediscovered a story, a modern story, that's very similar, that maybe if you can't connect so much to that, you connect to this. And it's a story about the writer um, Isabel Allende, very famous, very beautiful uh, novelist. And it's a story that came out of a documentary that was made by uh, Nancy Sobonia. It was made in 2005, and it's called The Gifts of Grief. And in it is a story about Isabel uh, during a time when her daughter was in a coma. Her daughter was in a coma for a year and actually died when she was 29 years old. This is the story from Isabel. She said, once when I was in the hospital in Madrid and my daughter was connected to all kinds of machines and life support, I became totally desperate. I fell to my knees in a corridor and I was crying like a child. An old peasant man who was waiting there for his wife came over and said, stand up. I wailed, why? Why is this happening to me? And he replied, get this, why not? Why not you? It was a revelation, and I realized that mothers for millennia all over the world have lost their children. Fathers all over the world for millennia have lost their children. Sometimes all of their children, and they have borne it. So why not me? Why am I so special that I'm not going to be in pain? That my children are always going to be safe? I'm not special at all. 
And it was interesting, Nancy's comment about Isabel's story was that Isabel experienced that movement from the insulated self into connection. Everyone on this planet will experience loss. And that's where it links us to our humanity. It is the great leveler. It's a beautiful line. It's the great leveler. It makes us all equal. You holding up? Is it getting too heavy? (laughs) No joke is coming to mind, so. If you need to smile and bring in the sense of happiness in the body, as Sylvia taught us yesterday, let's just take a moment and smile, because what? There's the pain and the open heart of compassion, and there's the joy, and can we meet that fully? Sometimes that is so much harder than the pain. So nobody's looking at you except me. Let's all smile together. <laughs> it's available. You know. Sometimes we can smile through the pain, and sometimes we can't. And it's okay. So why is it hard to practice compassion? In a fundamental level, we all know that it's hard to practice compassion because of this habitual, incessant selfing process that we can't seem to uh, get out of. (laughs) And it's constantly trying to protect itself and assert itself. And it believes that this one here and you all there are separate and solid. That's a kind of a misunderstanding. But when talking about it more specifically, I'm going to bring out three themes. And the first theme about why it might be hard to practice compassion sometimes is the theme of it's too painful. Just too painful to open the mind, to open the being to the level of suffering, whether it's our own, whether it's the world. So a couple of pieces of this. One piece of it is that we get into this habit of trying to basically separate out and self-protect themes that we'll all be familiar with. Avoidance, numbing out, pity. This quality that I've taken to calling the concrete bunker. Uh, When I came into practice, I had this concrete bunker in front of my heart. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's experienced that. And you have your own image and your own words. Couldn't feel anything. Couldn't feel anything. There's this huge concrete bunker, lots of defense. You know, over the years, it's, hmm, might I be able to have a window in that bunker? Sometimes I felt like I was smashing my head against that bunker. You know, really hurt. And then there were times, it's interesting, this, this piece that Sylvia was talking about, about Deepama being able to walk through walls. Then there were times, metaphorically, when it was just, oh yeah, there's the bunker, but it's just like crashing my head into open space. There's nothing actually there. It's all a construction. We all have our own ways. So that's one side of it. And I think of our defenses as basically, you know, outdated skillful means. Usually we developed them when we were too young to have any other tools available to us. We did the best we can and we need an upgrade. We need to wake up and realize, oh, now I'm this age, and I have this life, and here's the support that is available to me, whatever it is, no matter how small. And ah, 
I could come up, you know, I can bow with a deep bow of respect to that outdated, skillful means that may have saved my heart or maybe even my life when I didn't have other tools available and think, ah, might there be another way? It's one of my favorite lines from Siddhartha right before he sat down under the Bodhi tree. He had been trying all these practices and all these means and they had been very helpful to him, but suddenly he realized, I'm a little off base. And that's when he thought, might there be another way to awaken? And the whole series of events of beginning to take care of the body and then sitting down to the bow tree and fully awakening arose out of, in part, that thought, might there be another way? We could ask ourselves, do I really need to act out this old habit pattern right now? Might there be another way? I will confess, I ask myself that sometimes, and sometimes the answer is no. Okay, compassion. Okay. The opposite is getting sucked in. You know, we get consumed by the fire that, that when we're trying to help or we're trying to you know, be with an experience, we get consumed by the fire that we're in. I think of that as merging without wisdom. We're basically denying relative reality, you know, that there is a self and another on a personal relative level. You know? And... On an ultimate level, you know, it's not as real as it looks. But we, sometimes we need to really respect that there is you know, my pain and your pain, and that also there is our pain. And we get lost, and so we fall into codependence, obsession, loss of self-identity, uh, loss of the ability to take care of ourselves, kind of the over-importance hero complex. There's so many different versions of this. I want to share with you a quote from Zen teacher Darlene Cohen. She actually passed away January 11th of last year, which is part of why I want to share the quote. I want to keep her voice of the Dharma alive in the world. She died of ovarian cancer, but she practiced with chronic pain from rheumatoid arthritis for many years and also helped many other people with chronic pain for many years. And this quote is rather long, but it's about that journey from avoidance to getting sucked in to finding a compassion that is wise and mature. She says, People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and then am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. And then it tugs and becomes more insistent in proportion to my resistance. And finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I am caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First peace, then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. 
I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else, like purification or renewal, or something hopeful. (laughs) It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist until it overwhelms me. But I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So I'll give you something to work with that might, for some of us, be an edge to our practice. And it's a second aspect of why it might be hard to practice compassion. It's this question about, what about when someone else harms me? And what I want to say really clearly is that this topic deserves an entire Dharma talk. So if what I say feels incomplete, it is. And it still feels very important to bring it into the room. I received a teaching during that time that I was living and studying in India that challenged the edge of my practice with this that I want to share with you. I had the privilege of receiving teachings at one point from His Holiness the 17th Karmapa. So I'll tell you a little bit about his story so that you know that the person that gave this teaching was not just speaking flippantly. His Holiness the 17th Karmapa is the head of the Karju school in the Tibetan tradition. I'm not asking you to believe in reincarnation or not believe in reincarnation, but the Tibetans do as a culture. And so he's the 17th manifestation of this particular stream of wisdom and compassion. Like so many tens and hundreds of thousands of Tibetans, he had to flee over the high passes of the Himalayas and risk his life with what he was carrying on his back. The privilege of being His Holiness the Karmapa did not save him from that suffering. And then when he arrived in India, he's had various different uh, people challenge him. Uh, He, at different times, has been under almost what you could call an informal house arrest, asked by the Indian government not to leave his monastery residence. He's been denied visas to come to the West to teach. Uh, His reputation has been challenged by various different people saying, we do not believe that you are the real holiness, the Karmapa. He's had some problems, you know, Um, some suffering. And in normal circumstances, it would be fairly easy to say that some people have been trying to harm him in various ways. So I take him seriously when he offers this teaching. And the teachings that I went to with him were all about compassion. The whole series of teachings were about compassion. And so he said, when somebody harms you, especially if you've tried to help them in some way, I think that they have gone crazy, in quotes, from the afflictive emotions. This is a cause for even greater compassion for them. When somebody goes crazy, in quotes, keep your wits about you. Respond with compassion. What's he saying? You know, Sylvia said, get a grip. So maybe he's saying, get a grip. Let the reactivity die down. Respond with compassion. This is possible. Not always, not easy, but possible. 
And if that's too much of an edge with whatever person came into your mind, we need to work with it on a continuum. Maybe it's with a lesser harm. You know, we start where it's easy and build the muscle. Um, This teaching is not condoning actions of harm. It's not. Uh, And maybe if it's not working for you, maybe this simple phrase uh, that one of my students reminded me of recently, uh, he said to me, oh yeah, Heather, I like the teaching, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. That's really what His Holiness is saying. When someone harms you, you know, they've gone crazy, they're confused in some way. Keep your wits about you. Respond with compassion when you can, as much as you can. And then in parentheses, I imagine him saying, and when you cannot, offer compassion here. Because who's hurting then? A third reason that it might be hard to practice compassion is this piece about, I care, but what do I do? It's really about the challenges of active compassion. When we get confused about how to respond and we get overwhelmed, uh, it can lead to indifference, it can lead to freezing, it can lead to passivity. Uh, I really see compassion as an active quality. Uh, It can also lead to rash attempts to do anything at all to help. So one of my students talks about a quality that's interesting to me that she's working with. Uh, She calls it compassion fatigue. So I want to talk about that. Uh, And there's a teaching from Ruth Dennison that I quite like, that in moments when we can't feel anything, we have compassion fatigue, you might apply if it felt appropriate. Now let's look at who Ruth Dennison is. She's one of the elders in our tradition. And I trust her teaching that I'm about to give because of what she's been through in her life. She grew up in Germany. She survived World War II in Nazi Germany. She almost starved to death and was abused after the war before she was able to get to the United States and learn practice and have a tremendous amount of awakening. So when she says in her German accent to her students who cannot feel the compassion, who are numb and dissociated and can't feel anything at all. Feel the numbness, darling. Just feel the numbness. I trust her. And I say it to myself, and you could say it to yourself in those moments. I also look to the life of the Buddha for inspiration. And the Buddha didn't just get enlightened and live happily ever after. So there's a story of the Buddha uh, when late in his life, right before the end of his life, he found out that there was a quarrel between his clan, the Sakyas, and a neighboring clan over water rights. It's very relevant in our day and age. Water rights. And the quarrel had come to violence. And once he found out about this, he said, if I refrain from going to them, these men will destroy each other. It is clearly my duty to go to them. How many times have we in our life, individually, in our immediate community, in the wider society said, if I refrain from acting, there's going to be great suffering. It is clearly my duty to do something. It's a very powerful moment of clarity. 
So he arrived with these two clans, and first he showed them his powers. He actually arrived by flight. You don't have to believe this, but as a metaphor. He arrived by flight and sat in the air cross-legged in front of these two clans. He asked them what was going on. He listened deeply and actively. And then he spoke clearly and powerfully, and he did not take his own people's side. He said, great kings, why do you act in this manner? Were I not here present today, you would set flowing a river of blood. You have done what should not be done. You live in strife. I live free from strife. Boom. Speaking the truth. Putting his body on the line in the middle of this violence. This act of compassion modeled for us by the Buddha. And we do this, and we can do it. And it's scary, and we do it. And we do it, each in our own way. I'll read to you my favorite teaching that the Karmapa gave during the time I received his teachings in this theme. He said, you know, if there's suffering, but we don't know what to do. We may want to help, but we lack the patience to understand the situation fully and come in with our own ideas or personal agendas. When helping others, positive attitude and intention must be combined with practicing the paramis, which are the perfections of heart, and favorable conditions are needed. That punchline is so incredible. You know, we could have the patience. We could understand the situation fully. We could not act from our personal agendas. We could have a positive attitude. We could have wholesome intention. We can practice the paramis. And if if the conditions are not favorable, who knows? We're not in charge of the show. But it's an incredible set of skillful means that he offered in that single sentence. I frantically wrote it down when he said it. And I've been using it in my own practice ever since, every day. We will be teaching the formal compassion practice in a few days. Um, And in the end, whether you choose to use it a lot, a little, just in the Brahma Vihara practice, I think it's about the attitude of compassion. I think of it as the heart breathing in and the heart breathing out. When we take an in-breath and an out-breath, we don't judge the out-breath as better than the in-breath, but somehow when the heart contracts, we think it's a problem. I think of it as just the heart breathing in and the heart breathing out. It's okay. Cycles of purification. And a closing leads to another opening, leads to another layer of contraction, leads to another opening. It's kind of the spirit of compassion as we practice here. I'll share with you my favorite phrases for compassion because I know from talking with you, some of you, that you need them now. So when I practice compassion, I put a hand on the heart, as we've sometimes said with metta, and I put a hand on the guts because... Compassion is about the guts of things. And I say to myself, I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased.
And we'll each find our own words. So I'm going to take a risk. Um, I don't identify as a poet, and I don't read anything that I ever write publicly. But um, (laughs) at the end of this journey in India, when I realized that the practice had come full circle, and that I'd actually arrived where I began, what does being love mean? a poem came out. So I share it with you in the hopes that it might be helpful. It's called Postscript, Compassion. This girl with the huge heart who stays way back to protect it still, who thrives in the limelight but does not want to be known, who requires a role, some parameters of who she is and what she does still carrying her shell to hide under. Is it safe now? In a world dripping in loss and cruelty, a wash in kindness and caring, the heart flipping endlessly from friend to foe, there is no security to be found here. Anything can happen, and it does. How to trust when you know that you will lose everything. How to give when there'll be no return. But love cares not for the receipt. Love lives by its own name, opening endlessly in its kaleidoscope of flavors, spreading its wings and flying over the nameless masses, caring, caring, caring. The shell is too heavy to carry on the wings of the open heart. So do not despair, dear one, for now you see with clear eyes the choice always before you. The heart continues its dance, choreographed long before now, caring, 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 meeting this too, this too. If she can just love enough, try hard enough, life will still be what it is and nothing more. But at the end of the day, she will know that just as the sand is slipping through her fingers, it is being touched, felt as enough in its precious transiency. That heart truly is an unstoppable force. So those are my words from this heart about compassion as the path to awakening and the expression of awakening. Uh, I offer them for your reflection uh, and as always, such gratitude for the kindness of your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.